I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. This month's single-serving selection, The Hobbit, by J.R.R. Tolkien. So, Casey, I promise to try to not be completely insufferable this month. <laughs> I am Casey, and Casey means me. <laughs> yes. So, of course, this month we are talking about The Hobbit from the year 1937, the classic fantasy novel by J.R.R. Tolkien. Oxford professor and father of modern fantasy, also the author of The Lord of the Rings, Leaf by Niggle, Farmer Giles of Ham, and posthumously, The Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales, The Children of Hurin, and his own translations of classic poems, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and Beowulf. And to join us in this discussion, for the very first time as a guest on the program, a veteran of the dearly missed View from the Gutters comic book club podcast, Kaylee Casterline. Welcome, Kaylee. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. So, Kaylee, before we get into this, um, what is your history as a big Tolkien nerd yourself with the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien and The Hobbit in particular? So I was a like super voracious reader when I was younger, and... This will sound like a sad story. I promise it's not a sad story. <laughs> uh, I didn't have a lot of friends growing up just because, like, I moved around a whole lot. So Three I just kind of. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, like, just really immersed myself into books. Uh, and The Hobbit was kind of the one that really just sort of, like, captured uh, my imagination. Uh, I first read it in. I had it read to me in second grade, and oh, I wow. read it myself in third grade. And then I started this one like private joke that was funny only to me of doing a book report on The Hobbit every single year, <laughs> starting in third grade and then going through to high school. Oh, wow. Uh, so Was it like, a different writing project every year or yeah. was it the same paper from second or third grade? <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could have gotten away with that. No, it was like third grade. It was like, make a diorama of a book you liked. And it was like, great. I'm making, you know, the, the Shire. I'm making the, like, the hill and the door. Uh, and then fourth grade is like, oh, now you have to write an actual essay and it'll be five paragraphs long. And so it just kind of went and grew up with me as I like went through school. So you've been training for this episode yeah. for perhaps your entire life. Exactly. <laughs> A bit uh, strength training, right? Yes. <laughs> My entire life has led up to this moment right here. This is like when those those world's strongest men are like covering themselves with like pontoons and like walking as hard as they can through the pool. <laughs> exactly. You, you've prepped for this yes. moment. So no pressure. <laughs> well, um, well, my um, this wasn't the first novel that I read. Um, the first full novel that I read was... Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's the first Earthsea book, The Wizard of Earthsea, I think, which is obviously very heavily inspired by The Hobbit. Um, but when I, I think it was sixth grade when I read uh, this Hobbit, and then that was the year that me and my friends all read the same books. Like we would pass around the same books. So this is absolutely one hundred percent one of like the earliest sort of nerd nerd things that I had exposure to that wasn't like TV, um, and. Certainly one of the ones that always makes the biggest impression because, you know, D&D is based on The Hobbit. And so that was such a huge thing for us. So, Kaylee, if you had to sum up 
what The Hobbit is all about in like a paragraph or two. What is the synopsis? What is this book about? So it is it is a children's book and it's roughly about a very reluctant hero who is brought to find fame and fortune when he doesn't actually particularly want either one of those. Um, but his own not hubris, but sort of his own ego gets in the way. Um, and he ends up going on this adventure mostly because uh, the dwarves say that he can't. Uh, and he ends <laughs> up being like the sort of pivotal uh, and, you know, titular character being the Hobbit. That's the thing I find kind of fascinating about this story, what I think separates it from a lot of other fantasy books, especially a lot of other classic fantasy heroes, is that uh, Bilbo Baggins, the titular Hobbit, doesn't really want to go on an adventure. And the older I get, the more I find myself relating to his reluctance to want to leave the house, <laughs> that he's got a nice armchair and he's got tea time and he's making himself little cakes and seed cakes and and uh, scones and the very idea of having to sleep outdoors and mm -hmm. being chased by giant spiders and thrown into prison cells <laughs> by goblins and stuff. That just seems like man, that doesn't sound like fun. I don't want to get rained on yeah. or be caught in a, a storm. But the element of that not being, you know, your your typical sword-wielding, you know, Sir Lancelot kind of hero who's going to fight all these big battles was pretty revolutionary and still kind of is when you look at other fantasy heroes, whether it's Conan the Barbarian or Elric or a lot of them, where I think Bilbo gets in one sword fight in the entirety of this book, and that's with the giant spiders in Mirkwood. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it's not a story about somebody who overcomes problems with violence most of the time. It's mostly like clever uh, tricks or coming up with a way to get around an obstacle or an enemy or escaping something or just being smart and resourceful and brave in, in specifically unexpected ways for this character. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a story that like rewards uh, cleverness more so than like brute strength or uh, just like physical prowess. It's more about like you can't fight, you know, these trolls. Uh, you you will die if you try and fight them. How do you outsmart them? How do you get the spiders to turn uh, from a very well organized uh, foe into like an absolute mess and they're tripping over themselves? Uh, how do you trick the king of the elves into like helping you escape essentially um and so all i think all but like a few instances he's mostly just rewarded for being clever yeah and i you you kind of it was interesting that you might you discuss have the idea of oh the older i get the more i relate to bilbo wanting to be this sort of homebody and the adventurous being the furthest from your mind also, you have to imagine that he that Bilbo also appeals to kids because kids are also if you're a eleven year old kid or a twelve year old kid or something you're thinking, yeah, the outside seems fine, but I don't really want to go away from home. <laughs> like I don't I and meet these all these people that I don't know and be away from my mom and dad and be away from my books and my bedroom and like whatever. Like it's also something that a kid can relate to is like adventures sound great, but I'm a little afraid. Yeah, yeah. yeah it like we've talked about this before, the sort of uh, love affair that I'm growing to have with fictional wet blanket characters <laughs> that I watch something like Lethal Weapon 2 now and I 
don't know when this happened. I mean, I was never Martin Riggs, but I really have, feel an affinity for Murtaugh now <laughs> that he just wants to fix his house up and he doesn't really want to be in an action movie. <laughs> and I get that. I understand that so much, you know. The same thing with like your rabbit in Winnie the Pooh where my immediate empathy goes towards the character who's just like oh man my friend ate all my food and is stuck in my door <laughs> and just going man, oh it's like i used to as a kid you see yourself in characters like tigger but now it's just like it is a bilbo character where he likes having nice things he likes being comfortable but there's that little voice in the back of his head from his tookish upbringing you know his mom was a member of a much more adventurous family that just kind of wants to see mountains and wants to uh, eat outdoors and meet people that he's never seen before instead of the, sen the same 10 neighbors that he's seen forever. And he's growing up in a culture which is very provincial. I mean, hobbits uh, live in a beautiful countryside, but it's a countryside that nobody ever leaves and is remarkably they're all incurious about what's happening outside and, and of it. And no one visits, right? I mean, Gandalf comes by once in a generation, but it's not like you have men normally going through the Shire at all. Like, they say that men visit, like, on the periphery, right? Like, in Bree and stuff. Um, but they just don't have anyone other than the nature around them. They're just, like, totally sheltered from everything. And even Gandalf is, like, a weirdo to them. That when yeah. he shows up, it means that he's going to drag somebody off and go on an adventure, and they're going to come back a lot less respectable than they were before. Yeah. And he does not want to get caught up. And that's what I love about the opening scene where Gandalf shows up while Bilbo's smoking outside, is... Bilbo's trying to be polite, but he uses good morning in about five different ways. Mm -hmm. And some of them are very similar to the American Southern, bless your heart, <laughs> which is translated to fuck you. Um, there's a little bits of it that I just absolutely love. Um, like he wishes Gandalf a good morning and Gandalf's like, do you wish me a good morning? Or do you mean that it is a good morning, whether I want it or not? Or that you feel good this morning? Or that it is a morning to be good on? And then later, when he gives him the fuck you good morning, he says, what a lot of things you do use good morning for, said Gandalf. Now you mean that you want to get rid of me, and it won't be good till I move off. To think I should live to be good morning by Belladonna Duke's son, as if I was selling buttons at the door. And I just, <laughs> I love how irascible and grumpy Gandalf is. Mm. Um, but I just love this idea that this guy shows up and you want to be sort of polite, but you're like trying to be polite in a, can you please leave? And Bilbo's just so flustered by this because again, he's kind of fallen into this comfortable groove. And the last thing he wants is to, to go on an adventure where people would chase him with swords. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, Gandalf. And I, I think you really... There, there's a lot in The Hobbit that had to be changed from the first edition to the second edition with the writing of The Lord of the Rings. But one thing that has stayed just amazingly consistent is Gandalf's like grumpiness and his need to like have the last word on everything. <laughs> uh, and I just I love that as a character. I have such a soft spot for like grumpy old men characters. And so Gandalf is just like fits that mold perfectly. I love Gandalf. I, I like Gandalf too, but this is, I got I really got this sense reading it through this time, and it had been many, many years since I had read The Hobbit. I think he is, maybe this is a question for you two who know a lot more about this book. He is frequently absent. <laughs> Gandalf in this book is like, he's, he's, the, he's the change agent, right? He gets this thing going, um, and then 
He's frequently very absent, and he's absent at times when they probably really, really need Gandalf. So to me, it's like, is he doing other stuff because, you know, Gandalf is a Valar, right? And he's got other... The, the world's bigger than these... Correction, he's a Maiar. Maiar, excuse me. <laughs> um, the, and, you know, the world's is much bigger than the hobbits and the dwarves in their quest. Or is he just like, I wanted to go down to the pub for, like, a couple nights, and who cares? The dwarves will have to take care of themselves. Is Gandalf just, is he just intentionally neglectful or he just has other business that's like w- way, way bigger and beyond the scale of the dwarves in their quest? Uh, ba- basically the, so the quest of Erebor, which is the events of the Hobbit, um, going to reclaim uh, the mountain and defeat Smaug. Smog. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it. I have heard both ways, so I will probably just flip flop <laughs> between fine. the two of them. Neither do I. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, during during the events of the Hobbit, uh, Gandalf is actually off with um, like the elves and with like a highly specialized council to def- defeat the uh, necromancer, well, necromancer, right, right, um, who is actually Sauron. And so the the whole like oh, there's a necromancer in the woods, and he had uh, Thorin's grandfather, and you know all all of these things is like surprise, it's Sauron. Uh, and they thought he had been vanquished, and the whole like fighting of Smog uh, was to just make sure that Smog couldn't help the Necromancer while they oh, were doing that. So now that that ends up being my question: Is it like is that like a second? Is that inclusion of that p- part of it a second edition, a second version change to help tie it more to Lord of the Rings, or did it was originally just like? You know, what was what you said the Gollum thing is a little bit less scary and well, it's a little bit more whimsical. My and, understanding yeah. is that the Necromancer is in the original version of The Hobbit, and he's sort of briefly mentioned in the way that Tolkien mentions a lot of things and includes a lot of things from his Silmarillion mythology in in the middle of it. The Necromancer was one of the first little hooks that when they wanted to make a sequel to this book, he was thinking, Well, obviously I set up this bad guy that lives in the south of Mirkwood. And they even say, well, he's been driven away, but it may not be for many ages of this world that he gets finally dealt with. So Tolkien himself saw it as a potential future story, and it was there originally. So that was in the original part of the book. But the funny thing I think a lot of people may not know about The Hobbit is it wasn't originally intended to be part of his Middle-Earth legendarium, Mm -hmm. that it was a separate children's story that he was privately writing. He was sharing it with his kids. But... It just by chance fell into the hands, I think, through one of his students who was working at a publisher. She handed it to, I believe it was Stanley Unwin, who he gave it to his child, Rainer. And Rainer was like nine years old at the time and asked Rainer to read it and say, hey, is there anything with this children's book? Can you read it and do a little book report? And I think he got paid like a shilling to do this book report (laughs) and loved the book. And that's what convinced his dad to publish it. It became a massive hit. And that's when they wanted to write a sequel to it. And then Tolkien really, at that point, because he had been working on the legendarium of the Silmarillion inside of his head, you know, developing what he referred to in a letter to his, before she was his wife, his then girlfriend, as his nonsense fairy languages, (laughs) and building this web of interconnected, like, mythology involving the elves and dark lords and... He really wanted to go, well, you want another book by me? And he's like pitched them a Silmarillion and they said no. So (laughs) he was like, well, I don't know what to do. So he found a way to retroactively trick them into 
publishing both a sequel to The Hobbit and a sequel to The Silmarillion in one book in Lord of the Rings. Hmm. Okay. So there are elements that appear in the Silmarillion mythology that he had created from like 1916 onward that he'd been developing and writing and rewriting and tweaking. Um, I think the publisher was just like, this is too weird and it's too Norse and there's too many characters whose names start with F. And (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand the first thing of it, but they wanted more hobbits. They wanted something more like this, a whimsical children's story. And he tried to find, he created a transitional form. But even in the original version that was published in 37, you still had uh, references to the fallen elven city of Gondolin. And he's got references to like the wood elves saying they're, not descended from the same elves in the the high elves of the West who went over the sea to ferry and came back with all this lore and ma- uh, music and art. And so they're less learned and more dangerous. And there's little things like that, that when I first read this when I was 10 years old, all of that went over my head. Mm-hmm. But I'm reading it this time, having read The Silmarillion and read Unfinished Tales, and it's just like, oh my God, look at all this stuff that's in there. And he was sneaking it in even then. So this didn't become part of the Middle-Earth legendarium until he was writing Lord of the Rings. Mm. And I think, like you mentioned, in the 1950s, while he's finishing up Lord of the Rings, he goes back and changes things like the Gollum chapter. Mm. Because originally, I believe, he just wins the ring from Gollum in the riddle contest outright. Yeah, they they like split as, like not as friends, but with like a mutual respect and the sort of like, well, you bested me and now you get this ring and I'll show you the way out of these caves. Dang it. And not very like, much not what yeah. it is now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, they just they change him in the updated version into this crazed weirdo who mm-hmm. lives in a cave and it's basically canon in this story that he turns himself invisible on occasion and strangles goblins to death and eats their babies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and when the ring is lost to him, he loses his shit and he is screaming and, and crying. And that's where he becomes really kind of the golem that we know of from the Lord of the Rings, that, that they had to go back and completely rewrite that chapter. And I mm-hmm. think I wouldn't be surprised if they also, uh, if Tolkien had added in a bunch of Silmarillion stuff sort of threaded throughout as well. So when I was doing my read through, uh, I I was like trying to do a like, OK, I'm reading my version and then also reading alongside it the like first edition or at least where it's different. Um, a lot of the things that he ended up changing were, and I I empathize w- with this so much, like as a dungeon master, <laughs> of like, oh no, I I put that Bilbo has cold chicken and tomatoes in his pantry, but that doesn't make any sense because tomatoes only came you know to regions like this post industrialism, right. right. and that's not gonna work. I gotta fix it. So now it's like in the second edition, it's uh, cold chicken and cucumbers, right. And it's just like perfect. I, I, that that I had that was my first note that I've got experts in the room, so I have to ask this: Who is the narrator, and what is the context of the narrator? Because he makes mention of things that he makes mention of, like engines and tunnels, like with an assumption of that he lives in a the, the narrator and the audience, therefore lives in a time that knows like what at least steam engines and locomotives actually are explosives yeah mm-hmm. like wh- who is the narrator and who who is the assumed audience for that it's is it 20th century children or is it an alternate an alternate time i don't i i, I don't get it it seems strange everything else seems 
fairly well grounded in a story that's being told a few thousand years after something that took place 5,000 years ago, right? Mm. Um, but it, there are a couple mentions to of engines where I'm just like, I don't know what that means. I don't know how they know what that is. The kind of conceit that comes about in the appendices of The Lord of the Rings is that The Lord of the Rings, the fictional story behind the story is that Tolkien discovered a copy of something called the Red Book of Westmarch. And this is essentially the combination of Bilbo's diaries, Frodo's writings at the end of The Lord of the Rings about the events of that story, and probably stuff that Bilbo translated in Rivendell of, as they call it, translations of the Elvish, hmm. which I assume is probably the Silmarillion. And that the idea is that this is being translated down from generation to generation and that somehow made its way into the hands of Tolkien himself, who has translated it for a modern audience. And this is where it gets really weird. You want to know what a hardcore nerd Tolkien is. Um, Frodo is not Frodo's real name. Frodo is a approximation that sounds like English because... He explains this in the appendices that they are not speaking English. They are speaking a language called Westron, which is derived from Adunaic, which is the Numenorean language, but there's a bit of Elvish mixed into it. And that, what were the name? I'm trying to remember what their actual names are, but they said these are the, the, the actual names of like Bilbo and Frodo. It's like Maura Gobasi and um, <laughs> yeah, like, uh, what was, I forget what they are, but they all have different names. And they said, this is all translation to explain that what you see as English is actually this language, and this is what their names actually are. But the Elvish names, those ones are actually their names. Like Legolas's name is really Legolas, because that's a that's a uh, Sindarin name, I believe. Mm-hmm. But it's the levels upon levels where he straight out tries to explain even those weird little anachronisms as part of the translation process for a modern audience. Okay. Where it's like, for instance, Bilbo has a clock on his mantelpiece. Right. Yeah. Right. And that is not something somebody 6,000 years ago would have. But it doesn't really matter because other people in the Shire have umbrellas. Like Lobelia Sackville Baggins famously carries a, like a parasol around with her. But then, you know, they also have tea time and waistcoats with brass buttons. And uh, they have a very kind of pre-industrial Victorian English countryside existence. And then you go to like... Rohan and Rohan is like Anglo-Saxon medieval Englishman. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's all over the place. Sure. And I think fantasy stories, especially secondary world ones, you see this in Conan too. It's full of anachronisms because you want to have a story where your hero meets Vikings and then your hero meets ancient Egyptians and then they meet like samurai. And it doesn't matter that these people were never in the same world together. You just fudge the numbers a little bit. And it's like, that's mostly a samurai and that's mostly an ancient Egyptian and that's mostly a Roman centurion. Mm -hmm. But I think you get a lot of that here, but there's also this whimsical tone to the, the Hobbit where it cares a lot less about trying to square those circles the way it does in Lord of the Rings. Where you're like, whatever, he's got, you know, hobbits are probably living in the countryside right now and they're a little smaller, but they're a lot more, they still exist and they're just more wary of people than they ever were before. And and those are things that are sort of written in. And you mentioned the narrator because the narrator, and this is what I love about this book, frequently lapses into both second and first person. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That it has a sort of omniscient third person, but occasionally he'll say like, I know you're probably laughing at Bilbo right now because you can see the hole in his plan right now. Or they'll say something like, you know, 
when they meet the trolls, like, I promise, trolls really do sound like that. They really are awful. <laughs> and, like, these little kind of Ron Howard in Arrested Development kind of editorialisms. And mm. I just, I love it. It's so good. And uh, one of, like, my favorite stories about Tolkien is he, so he, you know, he wrote the first edition of The Hobbit. And then he started working on you know, Lord of the Rings proper. And he's like, I have to go back. I have to fix it. And so then he published the second edition. And he had to like concede a lot because his publishers were like, you can't change all of the things that you want to change. People love this story. Leave it alone. You can fix some plot holes, but you got to leave it alone, which is why like we still have the clock on the mantelpiece. But for years, he would go back <laughs> and like, I got to fix this. It's <laughs> it's wrong. And uh, one of the things that he was like, I have to fix it. Uh, was the tone um, but every time that he tried to rewrite it to kind of fit more of the tone of the Lord of the Rings he's like the Hobbit loses all of its charm and like all of its sort of like love for the Hobbits and for the story when you don't have that sort of like like great uncle has you on your lap and is telling you this grand story of adventure that he's absolutely just pulled out of thin air uh, and you're just like you feel very cozy reading it, right? And he he had to finally admit, like, I can't rewrite The Hobbit anymore because it loses that coziness. In 1960, he tried to do a third edition of the book. <laughs> I don't know if you know about this. <laughs> there was a he tried to do a, a page one rewrite of The Hobbit so that The Hobbit would feel like The Lord of the Rings. Like he just was going to start from scratch and do all over again from page one. And he made about four chapters in. Okay. And the exact sentence from someone he gave it to, I believe it was one of his students um, or someone that he knew, and she said, it's wonderful, but it's not The Hobbit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because The Hobbit is like a children's story, and The Hobbit has this kind of whimsy and playfulness in it that really makes it come alive when you read it out loud. Yeah. It's made to be read out loud to another person or to be heard as an audio performance. Like the Andy Circus one that just came out is, mwah, it's amazing. <laughs> I, I've um, got to say that I always felt this. So I grew up my, where my brother was four years older than me. And so, you know, I would either get the books that my dad, like the science fiction books that my dad had finished reading and that my brother had read and I was getting them third hand while I was reading his. And I very much had the idea and it probably wasn't intentional, but I feel like uh, growing up, growing steps, where mm -hmm. you'll want you'll read The Hobbit, and The Hobbit is a perfect sort of story that isn't that is full of like lots of lots of interesting, amazing, fantastic things, but it's not horrible and terrifying and scary. Even though there are some genuinely, seemingly scary stuff, the book doesn't feel very scary. And then by the time you sort of graduate. You're a few years older, then you're reading Lord of the Rings. Because then there's a lot more subtext. There's a lot more lore and history. There are a lot more human characters because there are very few human characters. There's in a this lot more existential dread yeah. In, yeah. in Lord of the Rings. There's but, characters going across a wasteland, starving to death, trying to bring an evil ring to a volcano, and then assuming they're going to die after they do it. You don't have that kind of fatalism at moments in The Hobbit. The right, Hobbit is much right. more of an adventure where Bilbo really does experience to get back home one day mm -hmm. and he's oh they, and, and they they make the whole funeral expenses thing a joke yeah he's like funeral expenses and that's that's like a ha ha 
moment, not like a I'm 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 terrified that he's gonna die at any second. I like that he's entitled to a fourteenth share of this mountain of gold, like this literal pile of gold. I would ask for the entirety of my fourteenth share to be spent on that funeral. (laughs) (laughs) I want something opulent. A boat made of gold. Build another mountain out of gold and bury me in it like a pharaoh. Uh, I actually, I, I had kind of wanted to talk about the like one fourteenth of the treasure um, hmm. because I think it highlights a lot of like Tolkien's like personal politic mm-hmm. um, where Bilbo is, you know, he's on this adventure and he's like, yeah, I get one fourteenth of the treasure. And then when he sees how much that is, his first thought isn't like, I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be like the wealthiest person alive. It's. This I don't want this. Yeah. Yeah. This is too, too much. much. Yeah. Uh, nobody should have this much. And he he talks about the sort of like ramifications of if if he were to have it, where you know he would spend his entire life defending it and hoarding it and having to hire guards to keep it safe and to keep well, himself is, safe. Isn't that the smog? The the sort of cautionary tale with smog yeah. is that smog can have all of the treasure to himself, but all he's doing is sitting on it all day, you know, all day for eternity and trying to fend people away. Yeah. Trying to eat people who come who try to come and take it. That's all he's doing. Yeah. Yeah. And so like at at the end he he ends up leaving with like two small chests and then, you know, everything that he got from the trolls and he's like, that's good enough. Right. That's all I want. And I just I really love that as sort of a highlight of you could think that you want something, but then once you sort of think about the ramifications or are actually confronted with it, being that wealthy is probably really bad. <laughs> <laughs> but the idea of even trying to bring a 14th share back through the entire path of the journey he's taken. He's yeah. never getting over the Misty Mountains and through Mirkwood. And he actually talks about, I'd have to hire an army to guard me yeah. as I'm going. There's no way. There's, yeah. I don't want all this. But you also see how stupid... This amount of money makes people. How stubborn. There's like a, there's definitely a fable about greed and pride in this mm-hmm. that Thorin, and I think Thorin is probably the character who falls the most prey to this over yeah. the course of the story. Thorin grew up in the Lonely Mountain as a young dwarf lad. That I was thinking about a comparison between him and the other famous exiled king character of Tolkien's Legendarium, which is Aragorn. Mm-hmm. Aragorn didn't grow up in a palace. He, he never felt entitled to this. He didn't even know he was a king until he was a young man. And I look at the attitude that that's ingrained in Thorin throughout the course of this story. And the first sign of it, one is Thorin is very arrogant and very haughty. And he's this sort of person who makes these long, ponderous, pompous speeches. And I think the way Tolkien describes it is he's a very important dwarf. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. That he knows he's a very important dwarf. And after the the dwarves, the 13 dwarves, eat him out of house and home, they've they've basically pillaged his pantry, which when you th- realize he's going to be gone for a year, actually makes a lot of sense. <laughs> but after they've done that, and Bilbo's just like, oh my god, oh my god, my dishes, my dishes. And the dwarves do, and I just love the the fact that they sing a song intentionally to tease Bilbo <laughs> yes. about how much of a baby he's being. <laughs> and they clean his dishes for him, and they put everything away. And he's just like freaking out the whole time that these dwarves are going to break his dishes. But while they're doing that, who doesn't chip in? Who's right. sitting by the yeah. fire smoking a pipe with Gandalf? Yeah. It's Thorin, because mm-hmm. Thorin thinks that there are certain tasks that are beneath him. Yeah. Thorin 
would not help you wash your dishes. Thorin is not going to do certain tasks like scouting ahead. He delegates and stands back with the gold chain he has around his neck and his fancy jeweled belt and his fancy silver tassel on his hood and tells <laughs> other people to do stuff for him. Usually his two nephews, but most of the time pushing Bilbo out there. Yeah. That Bilbo earns his 14th share so many times. Like there's a bit where they're going through Mirkwood and the uh, the they keep seeing a, a feast of wood elves and every time they try to approach it it disappears and like poof it's gone the lights all go out and they've basically ran at this dinner three times and the final time they're like okay they're obviously afraid of us but they won't be afraid of bilbo bilbo's like what about me what if i'm afraid of them <laughs> and they're ready to just push him out there um and they do this quite a few times they just go oh well he's got a job we've paid him and we've signed a contract now it's his job to to go out there and do that um i look back on that that dinner party and i just go Aragorn would have helped wash dishes. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. He doesn't think he's too good for certain things. Aragorn will will clean things. He'll mend clothing. He'll go hunting. And you can sort of see the seeds of the greedy person that Thorin becomes. Like, he would have just been let out of the Elven King's dungeons if he had just told them where he was going. Mm-hmm. But he's so stubborn because he thinks he'll have to share some of this money that he won't admit isn't his yet. Right. And, well, and that's... Uh... I like took some notes on that sort of portion too, where the men of uh, Lake Town, they feed them, they take care of them, they nurse them back to health. uh, And for everything that they give the dwarves, uh, Smog comes down and destroys their town. Yes. And Bard, who is the one who slays Smog, goes up to Thorin and is like, hey, we need enough to rebuild our town and to cover, you know, the funeral expenses of all the people who have died. And Thorne is like, you're being unreasonable. (laughs) I don't think so. You won't see a single gold piece out of me. Well, I mean, mean, that's the thing is the, that once you take stock of after the battle of the five armies is over and all of the destruction that the quest that the Thorne's quest, basically that he has, dragged all of these people along with uh to once you understand the toll the cost of in lives and of houses and treasure and you know just and the number of people who are destitute because of what the what happened it is so insanely like um selfish of him to just basically be like eh, it's not my problem anymore yeah, yeah. he doesn't like they 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 brought like the goblin army and how many thousands and thousands of dwarves or elves or or men died the reason by the way that those those goblins are riled up again is because the great goblin was killed right. during thorin's quest right I mean, he he's the one who basically went over to a bag of monsters and shook it really hard. <laughs> and he's the one who woke up the dragon by going out there and dragging Bilbo along. He's, I mean, they were starving and bedraggled and wet and and banged up when they showed up at Lake Town. Mm-hmm. They gave them a house to stay at and turned them into celebrities and were praising them and, and giving them supplies mm-hmm. to go north. And they lost everything for it. And this guy won't even shell out. And say, oh, this is my dad's money. Don't you know who my father was? <laughs> yeah. It's just like the most arrogant, horrible rich guy thing. And it reminds you so much of Smog. How is he not just another asshole in the mountain sitting on a pile of treasure, refusing to share and threatening people? Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, he he gets a redemption arc. Uh, but that, that sort of like absolute power and wealth like will corrupt absolutely. And you really see that like throughout 
I mean, most of Tolkien's works, really, uh, sort of the idea of maybe some people have too much power and maybe some people have too much money and they shouldn't have either one of those things and that shouldn't be a controversial take. Yeah. <laughs> It is a parable on greed mm. that all of these people are ready to start killing each other over a pile of money that there is more than enough for all of the people here. They yeah. would all be horribly, obscenely rich. And it's not even like if a for again, this is we're talking about the sort of the Elon Musks of the world. Mm -hmm. If you just gave them a share of the treasure to rebuild their house, you wouldn't even notice it was gone. That's yeah. how much money is there. That you're not even willing to share. And again, like Elon Musk, he's basically going whoop, whoop, to the people who actually do solve the problem, who actually save the people from the the the, the soccer team from the cave, <laughs> who actually do kill the dragon for you. You just call them a pedo and refuse to share. Yeah. And it's like, you fucking asshole. And it's like, you do see those little warning signs with him all along because all throughout the entire quest that he's going on, he's acting like the treasure is already his. They're already talking about how they're going to, to split it up and what they're going to spend it on while they're camping in Mirkwood. And you're just like, dude, there's a dragon at the end of this quest. Yeah. And the thing that is always just so amazing to me, and they point this out, Bilbo's like, wait a minute. He actually says it in the narration at one point. They have no plan. Mm -hmm. They're not even armed. When they go through Mirkwood and they actually have to fight the spiders, some of the dwarves, not all of them, some of the dwarves have knives. Yeah. Most of them are throwing rocks. Bilbo's the only one at that point who still has a sword. Like, like Thorin had a sword, but it was confiscated by the Elven King. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what are they going to do? What are they going to do when they get there? All they manage to do is rile it up, send it in the way of these humans who have a town who are minding their own business and hadn't even seen the dragon for a generation or two. Mm -hmm. And he ruined their lives. That's, so yeah. th then this leads me to the next question, which is, I mean, this isn't just a thing of Thorin's design. Obviously, this whole thing doesn't happen if it doesn't have the stamp of Gandalf's approval. And you're thinking, what's Gandalf thinking? Gandalf is is uh, and maybe he has prescience. I don't know. Um, and I don't know enough about the lore to know if Gandalf has enough wherewithal to understand what the what the outcome of things might be before they actually happen. So maybe he's. You can you can tell me, Mike. Maybe he's like. Um, he he has he understands what needs to happen and he's helping it he's helping it go along or he's pretty fucking irresponsible leading these 14 people to their deaths and riling up all of this chaos the impression i got and this is through a supplemental piece of writing that was published in unfinished tales i mm -hmm. never published it in his lifetime but it's a piece called the quest of erebor and it is written in lord of the rings style but it's kind of a prequel to the hobbit from the perspective of gandalf and he really has a vague premonition that if they bring Bilbo along, the qu the quest will succeed. And if they don't, it will fail. Like Thorin and the others don't want to bring a hobbit along. They think hobbits are useless. Mm -hmm. They see a bunch of people who don't build powerful, strong, you know, things. And dwarves, to them, the ability to build things that last, you know, big castles built into the side of mansions and beautiful bejeweled things if you don't do that then you're really not useful and i think there's even a point where they make a snide remark about if bilbo has silverware that it must mean he stole it from somewhere and it, it, Gandalf, it basically has to just like talk them down to like guys you need to stop you need to stop right now and he basically predicates helping them on them accepting bilbo and he doesn't really have a plan 
um, because he does just disappear at random moments. He is, it's a combination, I think, of him being quietly manipulative and having other, you know, wizard business somewhere else. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know what the plan was. When they went north with basically shovels and, and pack ponies and, <laughs> and probably some rope, I don't know what they were going to do because the, the, Bilbo having the ring even wasn't part of the original plan. Right. So were they just going to send him in there with nothing? Yeah, just like, here, you can sneak around a dragon who is entirely obsessed with this and can see you at all times. That'll be fine. <laughs> uh, I know, like, towards the end of The Hobbit, um, I don't remember the exact, like, page or where exactly, but Bilbo is remarking to Gandalf about how lucky they got and how, like, it was incredibly fortunate that they were able to kind of get away with this great heist. And uh, Gandalf says something to the effects of, like, do you really think that that was coincidence? Do you have, so, like, so little faith in prophecy? Mm. Um, so Gandalf kind of, like, does his wizard thing of, like, oh, it was always going to be like this. Uh, whether or not he actually knew that uh, is debatable. I but. think Gandalf <laughs> is both telling the truth and a liar at the same time. Because mm -hmm. I think he has a reputation to maintain. Yeah. That he is mysterious and he's going to speak cryptically. But sometimes I think he actually doesn't know, but has a vague premonition, but has to pretend like he knows. <laughs> yeah. So that people go along and do the thing. Because he's, at his heart, he's a meddler. Mm-hmm. And he's somebody who's constantly getting involved in things and railroading people into adventures that they might not necessarily want to go on. And he's playing a kind of 4D chess and people are just like, well, I need his help. So Thorin is going to work along with him. But Thorin still kind of frequently treats him like he's another employee. And Gandalf runs off in a huff and they get caught with something and Gandalf shows up and saves them. And by the time he actually leaves at the, the eaves of Mirkwood, uh, they're, they start whining and stuff. That's what I kind of love about the dwarves mm -hmm. is that dwarves are frequently just kind of giant babies. And <laughs> yeah. that's the moment in the story where the grown up finally leaves and they're forced to fend for themselves. So I, I, I should, I'm sure that this has been written about extensively and I don't know much about it as the, the dwarves as metaphors for Jews. I've heard this as, too. As, mm. as a thing of like, oh, they they had a diaspora, right? They had their homeland taken from them. They're jewelers. They're they're people who are greedy and obsessed with money, and so yeah. There's can, a lot of uncomfortable things right into that. And yeah. I think um, so. I was just reading this. I'm just reading the Wikipedia page, and it said that although Tolkien denied that he used allegory for the dwarves, taking Bilbo on his complacent out of his complacent existence has been seen as an eloquent metaphor for the impoverishment of Western society without Jews, like. In the most backhanded way, it can be like it can be like. Well, I base these guys around a stereotype, but Jews were a pretty good thing for Western society. This yeah. is one of those things where you you're reminded that Tolkien. Well, Tolkien when he hated Hitler and stuff like that, he hated the sort of overt racialized sort of politics of of outright brazen anti-Semitism. However, he was still born as a white Englishman in apartheid South Africa in 1892. Right. So a lot of those stereotypes are definitely baked into it. And it's one of those things, because I see a lot of the, the complaints and stuff about this stuff baked into Tolkien. And whenever people complain, I'm like, oh, buddy, I can find way worse stuff. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had a conversation with... Uh, when I worked at the comic shop, somebody saw my, my Tolkien tattoo and was like, I, I thought you were like very pro queer rights. How can you support this author? And it's like, 
okay, I get where you're coming from, but Tolkien would have been homophobic in the same way that any white Catholic man would have been homophobic in the early 20th century, which is, well, that's different, but it's not my business. But I don't particularly like it. But again, not my business, which was like the general air of like how like queer folk were treated uh, in like early 19th century. Um, it's like, on the other hand, you have like J.K. Rowling, you know, yes, who right. was like, you know, I'm sure he wasn't perfect. I'm sure he said things uh, in, you know, in his private life that were homophobic and that if I were to hear it, be like, no, like, that's, that's awful. That's horrible. Um, but he didn't bake it into his works in the same way as, you know, some authors have. H.P. Um, Lovecraft. Yeah, exactly. H.P. Right. Lovecraft. Right. Uh, and he ultimately was on the side of like people should be good and people should be decent to each other and these stories are not like one for one allegories of like oh this is the great war or this is you know this specific thing but it is metaphorical for sort of this like epic concept of you should protect the people around you you shouldn't hoard wealth you should be a decent and just ruler um, you know, things like that, where it's like, these are just morals uh, that I tend to align myself with. So in, in that case, it's like, I'm sure he was slightly homophobic. I'm sure he was slightly racist. He didn't bake it into his works in the same way that a lot of other authors have. And for that, you have to kind of give him a little bit Grade more him on the of, curve. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Because there's a there's a kind of there's two different kinds of racism. There's ideological racism and then there's passive racism. Mm -hmm. I think he had a lot of passive racist ideas. There were stereotypes of somebody who grew up in late Victorian British Empire that were baked into his his stories and stuff like that. Assumptions that he would make as opposed to the ideological racism of someone like H.P. Lovecraft where even by the basis of his time, yeah. this dude, for him, racism was actively important to yes. include. And I think that's one of the things you see here. I mean, this is what he wrote about the dwarves at one point, because they're forcing Bilbo to do something. And this is a quote. There it is. Dwarves are not heroes, but calculating folk with a great idea of the value of money. Some are tricky and treacherous and pretty bad lots. Some are not, but are decent enough people like Thorin and company if you don't expect too much. Mm. <laughs> and you Yikes. can see an evolution. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I mean, is that you see an evolution of that from the dwarves of The Hobbit, where they're very kind of skittish and nitpicky about what we paid you to do into The Lord of the Rings, where you have a character like Gimli, who's just a straight-out hero. Mm -hmm. Gimli is diving into battles with an axe, chopping off orc heads and saving Aragorn and Eomir at the Battle of Helm's Deep. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a there's sort of a difference there, and I think maybe that was an evolution. But it's it is kind of fascinating because again, it it feels like it's more of the the passive assumption of certain stereotypes yeah. rather than the active. He's not writing the Turner Diaries, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a there is a quote in this book, and it's about smog, and I think it may be quite possibly my favorite piece of Tolkien writing that I've ever seen. Hmm. It's uh, it's the moment in The Hobbit where Bilbo has put on his ring and has gone down into the treasure hoard of the dragon, and he just wants to take something. And he grabs this two-handed goblet, this cup, and takes it back with him. Now, this is, it's a cup. I mean, what is Smaug going to do with a cup? Mm -hmm. 
he he couldn't even pick it up with his teeny little fingers if he wanted to. He's not going to drink out of it. But there's this moment where they say that the dragon knows the value of every single thing in their hoard, and they know when something's missing. And this is a quote, and I absolutely love this. Thieves, fire, murder, such a thing had not happened since he first came to the mountain. His rage passes description, the sort of rage that is only seen when rich folk, who have more than they can enjoy, suddenly lose something that they have long had but have never used or wanted. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so good. I love that so much. I mean, it's that's so interesting because obviously Tolkien grew up in privilege he was not his family was not poor right he wasn't rich but i mean he was definitely someone who he flirted with a little bit of poverty but he was comfortably middle class his whole life but but i mean he's also someone who probably takes this he has the viewpoint of someone who could have just been who could have came out being that kind of bigoted conservative moneyed person that's just like well i i deserve everything that i have because i'm a better person but he came out of world war 1 and he understood like what what death and destitution and ruin actually was and so obviously that that permeates so much about how you think that he kind of crafts this narrative about what's good and just basically because you've been like well he's kind of seen the whole, the gamut of the whole thing, right? He's been at the he's been in the mud and he's been in the ivory tower, both of those places. But it's also you see it in the way that he writes battles. That he doesn't write them the way, say, a Robert E. Howard does, where it's not about look how cool it is and look at this guy did, and then you know Aragorn spun dramatically and clay you know clove off an orc head and it dropped in this dramatic fashion or whatever. It's never something that's about how cool all of this is. It's often how chaotic it is, but it's also frequently. Not the most exciting, I want to be there kind of action. Yeah. It's the kind of action that's horrified. I mean, the battle at the end of this story is something that Bilbo barely participates in and is kind of horrified by because it's a bunch of people fighting over a pile of money and it's kind of stupid. And the story knows that it's kind of stupid that basically before the goblins showed up, the elves and dwarves and men were all going to kill each other over that pile Mm -hmm. of money that, you know... Thorin called his cousins from the Iron Hills and Dan showed up with his his dudes and they were going to throw down over a pile of money because this is our money. And it's like none of them crafted any of the things in that treasure hoard. Right. None of them dug it out of the ground. None of them ever lived here for the most part. But there's this sense of it's mine because my ancestor made that and someone else having their sense of entitlement to it. And the fact that they are so greedy that they're unwilling to see really reasonable requests for can you rebuild our town Mm -hmm. that you had a hand in destroying and we cleaned up your problem you know what would have happened if bard hadn't shot that dragon it would have gone back north and eaten all the dwarves Mm -hmm. and that would have been the end of the story yeah and smog would have won yeah well and and there's also like uh, a point that's made several times where you know Thorin is saying like no this is my gold and I will defend it while at the same time the dwarves are starving in yeah. the mountain they yeah. don't have food and the only person that they could buy food from they have now made an enemy of and are saying that they refuse to give them any gold your closest town is Lake Town they're the ones that have access to food. Like, what are what was your plan? And yeah. the answer is they don't have one. Even the, the diminishing food they have was given to them by the men yeah. of Lake Town. Yeah. Exactly. It's amazing. It's it, Actually, this is something that is, is neither here nor there, but I'm sort of fascinated by it, is that obviously 
The Hobbit was written by J.R.R. Tolkien, a human being, and the intended audience is other human beings. But it isn't until two-thirds of the way into yeah. the story yeah, 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 yeah. that any human characters mm-hmm. show up right. in a world that has human beings in it. The men of Lake Town are the first time you see humans. You could argue, well, Elrond is half-human, but he lives among elves, and you could Wait, say- he's half-human? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, his his uh, parents were, you know, well, he's his parents were both half-humans, too. So two half-humans made another half-human baby. If you can try to, whatever the genealogy fraction work is. Um, but there's two two families of, of half-elf, half-humans, and they got married and had another half-human, half-elf baby. I could oh, see this is it. This is the trap right there. <laughs> I'm about to explain the history of Numenor, but I have to stop myself. Um, but yeah, in a weird sort of way, um, yeah, he's half human because his parents were both half human. Hmm. So yeah, you could say, well, Elrond is half human, but he's really culturally an elf. Um, Beorn might be human. But he's also magical, and he's kind mm-hmm. of like Doctor Doolittle meets Nick Offerman. <laughs> and but again, Bayorn again, another guy who took them in when they were starving. Mm-hmm. And this is this feels like there is some sort of a fable for the way that rich people act and how they act. Like everything I did, I am self-made. Uh, nobody helped me. Thorin is helped the entire time throughout this story. There's moments where he's going to starve to death or he's going to be killed and people rescue or save him. A lot of the time at the beginning of the story, it's Gandalf and then it's the Eagles, then it's Bayorn. And then for the rest of the story, it's Bilbo over mm-hmm. and over and over. Then it's the men of Lake Town. And then when he has the treasure, he acts like he did it all himself. Yeah. Nobody helped me. I'm self-made. And it's it's amazing how topical and current that, well, always seems a, yeah. as Kaylee said he does get a finish to his arc he's the he's one of the he's is he the only of the dwarf of the 13 that dies him uh, and Keely and Feely yeah. oh, right his nephews um, so but he does he does like understand that oh shit I'm gonna die because of this and I probably shouldn't have done this yeah like he gets a chance to like own up to the fact that his greediness caused all of this chaos mm-hmm. yeah and Which is something that's good. That's a yeah. that's a very that's a very uh, fairy tale kid story kind of kind of moral tale thing to do to wrap up that. Yeah. and it's good that his cousin Dan from the Iron Hills is a lot more reasonable than he is. Ends up on the throne <laughs> right. at the end because you know Dan is smart enough to go. Okay, we got to drop all of this fighting over a pile of gold because there's goblins coming mm-hmm. and we have to work together to fight it. And Thorin is still hiding in the cave upstairs. He's still being grumpy and refusing to to get involved, but he does have the big heroic charge at the end and and uh people rally to his cry and he gets to have a big heroic fight that leads to a heroic death. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think again like you said, he has that moment on his deathbed where he apologizes to Bilbo for threatening to throw him off a cliff <laughs> for giving these starving people some leverage in their negotiations yeah. with this crazy rich guy. The contrast between that and obviously who our POV character is with with Bilbo. I mean, Bilbo's just like he's a moral paragon, right? I don't think I'm not sure except for maybe at the very beginning but he's obviously still a very gracious host. But at the beginning, he's just sort of like, will you please stop fucking up my pantry, <laughs> right? Where he's maybe a little pushy. I he, I think he is, He I think he is like a moral paragon. He's, he's, per, he's per, a, perhaps even more more moral than Gandalf is. Yeah. yeah. He has his little moments where he's frayed and those moments are completely relatable. Like he just escaped from the goblin caves and just riddled his way out with, with Gollum. 
and he doesn't know where the dwarves or the wizard are. And he's like, I'm going to have to go back in there and get them. <laughs> and he, he finally, when he hears their voices over the hills, that's the moment where he just resolved himself to just put on the ring and go back into the caves and try to save his friends. And I, I love that about him because that's not, you see these depths come out of him as the story goes on because he's really not, he's an indoor cat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's not supposed to go on adventures, but he has sort of a bravery and a resourcefulness that, you know, Gandalf saw in him, but no one else did. He certainly didn't see it in himself. Mm-hmm. I think that's also such a fantastic thing to give young, a young audience is the idea of, of his, the, uh, was it the Tookish side? What are the two, whatever, what is two halves? The Tooks, Tookish side and the Baggins side. The, the, the Tooks and the Baggins. I love the fact that he is that that contradiction that all human beings are, right? The contradiction mm-hmm. of, well, there's something in me that could be cursed, reckless and courageous and noble. Uh, but then there's also the part of me that wants to be just sort of like humble and shy and a homebody and that sort of thing. Uh, and those two things are at war within him. And actually both of those things together make him the special guy that he really is. I love that idea of a character who just at, the, at their... And he uses the metaphor of parentage, right, as a way to sort of express this. The character who has these two warring sides and those two warring sides make him a better person. Yeah. 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 I I love it. It's it's such a great character. I love him. No, I I really love Bilbo and like the idea of parentage. And I wish that we got like just a short romance novel between (laughs) Belladonna Took and... uh, what's his bungo, bucket bungo right bungo. yes bungo <laughs> bungo baggins uh like i just i want i want to know how they got together um but like i i just really love that idea of like you have this character you have these two warring sides but because you have these two sides that are so different what you end up with is one completely reasonable person mm-hmm. in a world that is just not reasonable yeah is somebody who can go on an adventure but isn't going to act like a lunatic and mm-hmm. isn't going to be selfish and will see that pile of dragon gold and not be drowned in the sort of greed and like avarice and the sense of this is mine, I'm going to keep it, I'm going to fight to keep this thing that is completely unreasonable. There's no way I'm taking this home. Right. Um, <laughs> it makes no sense. At least the dwarves live in the place that's keeping the treasure, <laughs> but I wouldn't be able to. It's like, And I think that's the thing that makes hobbits a remarkable character and a hero for these sorts of stories, both in The Hobbit and in The Lord of the Rings, that only a hobbit isn't drawn to these visions of of greed and power that other people fall victim to, that other people get swept up in, the dragon sickness, as they call it, Mm -hmm. that everyone else, you know, just thinks about how great and powerful and rich they're going to be, where they just go, whoa, what a bother. I don't want to carry that stuff around with me. Ugh, that's going to interrupt tea time. If I have to do that, I'll be late. Like, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, so we've t- you've got, you touched on this a little bit when you were talking about the dwarves. I always felt reading this book the very first time and every single time thereafter, his inclusion of the songs are so compelling. I, I, it's weird when it was, we'd be like, if you read any other type of story, for them to have the lyrics of a song that are literally about the thing that's actually happening in mm-hmm. front of you would be like a little twee. It'd be like a little goofy. Um, but every single time, th- this is this, I don't, I don't know if you guys have this same experience. Every single time that I can remember reading it from like sixth grade on, I would try to make melodies in my head mm-hmm. of the songs and every single time, I'm sure those melodies have totally changed. And it makes me wonder if Tolkien himself had a melody in mind when he wrote them, 
or if the magic of it really is the fact that every single person realizing it's a song composes a a melody alongside the lyrics in their head and so there's millions and millions of different versions of these songs which is beautiful and special in and of itself i think it's the latter yeah, yeah. I, i've listened to audiobook adaptations of the hobbit and the lord of the rings and one of the things that always fascinates me and i look forward to it is when is the song going to begin what melody are they going to give it? And they give it a, a different melody in the movie mm-hmm. than the one you have in your head. Like, for instance, there was a Rankin-Bass Hobbit movie mm-hmm. that came out in 1977. And there is a tune to Over Misty Mountains Cold from Dungeons Deeps to Caverns Old. And it doesn't sound anything like the melody for that tune in the Peter Jackson movie. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't sound anything like the tune in the various audiobooks I've heard. So it kind of gives everyone this template to do something cool and creative. And you go, well, what does dwarf music sound like? And they get to make up their own version of it. It's like, it's kind of like a version of fan art in a way. Yeah. (laughs) No, absolutely. Because like, you know, you get to like start thinking about like, okay, well, elves are probably going to, you know, be singing like a bit higher and like there's a lot of them. So it'll be like a chorus and, you know, like a good just kind of like easy to follow rhythm but very pretty where it's like well dwarves sing in caves so it'll probably be a lot of dissonance and a lot of Mm. like reverb Mm. and like just kind of like as you start to kind of think about it just like this is like super cool because you can just create your own melody every single time that you read it uh or you know you can listen to versions of songs that are made and be like hmm I know I don't know what the song sounds like, but that ain't it. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And that's the thing that's always fun is that it becomes just another version of the way the character should look in your head. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. Because when you read his poetry and his songs out loud, after a while, you notice there is a rhythm there. Of course. Mm -hmm. There's a, I mean, Tolkien took this stuff. He took poetry and he took language so seriously that he really wanted to get that. And you can sort of, find yourself finding the song in that rhythm Mm -hmm. and some of these poems are just so fucking good Mm -hmm. yeah i i i guess the when i kind of roll that around in my head i kind of think well isn't that also sort of the way that each individual reader's imagination sort of gives a different face to to bilbo and gives a different image to what the shire looks like or what the misty mountains look like in the very same the self-same way right like mm-hmm. that so that tune will be different in everyone else's head and the differences and the similarities and differences that our imaginations have are kind of what make it this the subjective experience of reading the story and talking about it together so special and i he he had to have known that that had to have been part, because he just loved like uh, epic poems. He loved historical historical poems and stuff. He loved it so much. I'm sure he read Beowulf a million times and was thinking like, what did the what did this what did it sound like to hear these songs these stories if you were a thane you know who was living a thousand years ago? Yeah. It had to have been part of the calculus for him. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that gets us to our big question at the end of the conversation: Is the Hobbit worth your time Uh, absolutely like hands down no questions uh if if you haven't read it and you've like only watched the movies or only like know of it sort of like you know from its prevalence in pop culture i highly recommend just sitting down and reading it it's a super fast read uh even like i i have adhd so it's really hard for me to just like sit down and read a book um but even then i can read the hobbit in a day uh it just like it it's so conversational, so easy to read. I highly recommend everybody just sit down with it at least once. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, I was just trying to think of, I was trying to think of sort of foundational literary experiences that probably a lot of kids in America and in other parts of the world have it. I mean, I mean, I thought along the same line, something like Ender's Game. Like if you're young and if you're interested in like genre fiction, there are just some of these sort of core books that are pitched towards that audience. And The Hobbit is just one of them that it feels like um, if you didn't, it, it's it's not like uh like like say the movie Labyrinth where if you saw Labyrinth when you were a kid you'll probably have wide eyed starry eyed uh, mouth open when you're watching it now and if you'll only see it see as as adult you'll be like I understand what you're getting here but I haven't fallen in love with it that's not true for the Hobbit I think the thing about the Hobbit is is you can it can be this thing that you had this first ex- this nostalgic experience around having this world uh, created for you when your mind was very young. It it is it's timeless. It's got this insane timeless quality, and it makes sense. It it's it it's reputation for that sort of like that as you said, what well, the father of fantasy. Its reputation of being the foundation of what fantasy stories are is well earned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I adore this book. I adore this book so much. Uh, so a thousand times, yes, The Hobbit is worth your time. Before doing prep for this episode. I think I'd only read The Hobbit all of the way through once when I was like 10 or 11 years old. Um, I fell in love with it then and I immediately catapulted into The Lord of the Rings. Now, The Lord of the Rings is the one that I've read a half dozen times. I must have read The Lord of the Rings between six and eight times all the way through. I love Lord of the Rings. I revisit it a thousand times. And I made this kind of quiet judgment in my head that Lord of the Rings was the one that you reread. Lord of the Rings is a serious adult one. Lord of the Rings is the one that I should revisit over and over and over again. But I never revisited The Hobbit for some reason, despite how much I love the Lord of the Rings. And I, I think I made an unfair judgment on it because I told myself, okay, well, that's the fun book, but it's disposable. But reading it this time, now... Being someone who has read Lord of the Rings a half dozen times since, but has also reread Lord of the Rings after reading The Silmarillion and after reading um, Unfinished Tales and immersing myself in this world, I realize how much there there is in The Hobbit, how much detail that completely went over my 10-year-old head, how much love of lore and how many references to the minds of Moria and and to the necromancer and this history and the the migrations of the elves and all these oh, things. And, and the prose too. My God, the prose is amazing. It's <laughs> so good and yeah. it's so fun. And you just feel this very alive, breathing, vibrant world that he'd created for just this 300 pages. And you go, man, why haven't I been revisiting it so many times since I first read it when I was 10? Why did I unfairly write this book off? Because this book is fucking incredible. It has so many things. And not just the fact that, you know, the Tolkien nerd in me is so happy to see references to Gondolin and Moria. And like, oh, they went over the Sea to Fairy. Oh, my God, they're doing Silmarillion <laughs> stuff. You know, they're talking about the exile of the Noldor. And it's like, but they're using, you know, this whimsical language that's aimed at kids to talk about this stuff that has such flowery, epic prose for it in the Silmarillion. And how exciting that I recognize it. It's like, even that aside, this story is just funny. Mm-hmm. It's it's clever, and you get grumpy Gandalf, and you get reluctant Bilbo, and you get arrogant Thorin, and you get Smog, who I would forgot is so fucking delightful. <laughs> what an arrogant prick this guy yes. is. And then 
the reason that he gives away his his weak spot that is able to be exploited, the spot on his chest where because he's been laying on treasure so long that the treasure has dug into his chest and is acting like a, a waistcoat of armor of gems and gold and, and coins and and one that would fucking hurt. I always thought about that when reading this book. I think of like, well, what if I stepped on a Lego so hard that it stayed there and now my foot has armor? Um ouch. But the fact the only reason that he flips over to show Bilbo where Bilbo spots that weak spot is Bilbo flatters him. He he plays into this guy's arrogance and for all his power and his great age and the fact that his his teeth are like swords and his, his, his claws are like spears. He still has the same kind of vain arrogance that Dennis Reynolds from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia has. <laughs> that he just wants everyone to think that he's beautiful before he murders them. <laughs> and I love it so much. And I just I realized that those sort of arrogant prick characters, whether it's Saruman the White or Glaurung the Dragon in the Silmarillion, those arrogant, snide assholes... Those are the characters where Tolkien's writing comes alive. Mm-hmm. I mean, he loves writing those characters and he shines at it. This book is so fucking good. And I just think that anybody who is even vaguely interested in reading fantasy or wants to know more about Middle Earth should absolutely pick it up. It's fucking wonderful. Yeah, and if I've got to, if I can do my last pitch, which is I haven't um I haven't actually been able to finish a book all the way through for about four years now some of this is just you know part of it was just my free time was evaporating because i made this commitment to watch so many more new movies and certainly some of it was definitely like covid was like about the way the way we cope with covid i didn't realize how rewarding and how energizing it can be to go back and to reread something that and by and large, um, you you don't read books. You know, you don't revisit a book every six months. Usually, you revisit a book maybe once every five or ten years. Amazing how energizing it was, um, and how inspiring it was to have finished a book after all that time, and how much of a victory it felt like. So, if there are people who are listening who are like me who haven't, that you could you couldn't hope for a better sort of starter book to get just to launch yourself back in to wanting to go out to the library and read. Um, it's so awesome it's so awesome i loved it so much absolutely so thank you kaylee casterline for joining us for this conversation this was a blast is there anything that you're working on right now that you'd like to to pitch to the audience anything you want to promote uh not currently um i i've kind of sort of left this is my grand debut back into podcasting Ooh, yeah, so, oh, we, we want to have you uh, welcome, welcome. But, uh other than that i just i run a lot of dnd so if people want to talk about dnd you can you know find me on uh what am i on instagram tumblr discord uh at robot bear arms for basically everything uh if you if you open up any social media and type in at robot bear arms i'm probably there cool so Cool. Thank you so much, Kaylee Casterline. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. And a special thank you to our episode sponsors. So special thank you to Larry Brunswick, Margaret King, Tim Batson, Dan Nidecker, Sterling Taylor, Tom the Belgian, Wim the Belgian, Misa the Barbarian, Jem Newman, Carol and Dave Brulette, Kelzone, Kaylin, Matt Weber, and Jeff Nathan. 
Thank you, folks, so much. Thank you, thank you. We love you to death. And if you want to become an episode sponsor, please go to patreon.com slash radio versus the Martians or go to our website, radioversusthemartians.com. Click the big green button and join us. Otherwise, we will catch you folks next month. Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobias Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield-Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers. Even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes. And you can always find us online at RadioVersusTheMartians.com. sitting humped up right in the opening and his eyes gleamed cold in his head as he swayed it from side to side between his knees. Bilbo crept away from the wall more quietly than a mouse but Gollum stiffened at once and sniffed and his eyes went green. He hissed softly but menacingly. He could not see the hobbit, but now he was on the alert, and he had other senses that the darkness had sharpened, hearing and smell. He seemed to be crouched right down with his flat hand splayed on the floor and his head thrust out, nose almost to the stone. Though he was only a black shadow in the gleam of his own eyes, Bilbo could see or feel that he was tense as a bowstring, gathered for a spring. Bilbo almost stopped breathing and went stiff himself. He was desperate. He must get away out of this horrible darkness while he had any strength left. He must fight. He must stab the foul thing, put its eyes out, kill it. It meant to kill him. No, not a fair fight. He was invisible now. Gollum had no sword. Gollum had not actually threatened to kill him or tried to yet. And he was miserable, alone, lost. A sudden understanding... A pity mixed with horror welled up in Bilbo's heart. A glimpse of endless, unmarked days without light or hope of betterment. Hard stone, cold fish, sneaking and whispering. All these thoughts passed in a flash of a second. He trembled. And then, quite suddenly, in another flash, as if lifted by a new strength and resolve... He leapt, no great leap for a man, but a leap in the dark. Straight over Gollum's head he jumped, seven feet forward and three in the air. Indeed, had he known it, he only just missed cracking his skull on the low arch of the passage. Gollum 
threw himself backwards and grabbed as the hobbit flew over him. But too late, his hand snapped on thin air and Bilbo, falling fair on his sturdy feet, sped off down the new tunnel. He did not turn to see what Gollum was doing. There was a hissing and cursing almost at his heels at first, then it stopped. All at once there came a blood-curdling shriek filled with hatred and despair. Gollum was defeated. He dared go no further. He had lost, lost his prey and lost too the only thing he had ever cared for, his precious the cry brought Bilbo's heart to his mouth, but still he held on. Now faint as an echo, but menacing, the voice came behind. Thief! 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 Baggins! We hate it! We hate it! We hate it forever!